We are back in the Gospel of John, and uh, this morning we want to talk about John 13, 31 through 38, and the title of the message this morning is, Is Love Really All You Need? And I want to take you back to, uh, to London to the year 1967. This was the, uh, the transitional year for the Beatles. After five years of playing to packed out stadiums, they decided enough is enough. And they hung up their Nehru jackets and they decided that they would only work in studio. And uh, that was challenging because nobody had really ever done that before. You made your money in concerts, but uh, I think they did pretty well because their album, Sgt. Pepper's, even today ranks among the top 25 albums ever produced. We're talking like 50 years later, it still ranks among the top 25 to 50 ever produced. But they did something even bigger in 1967 that, that very few people remember. Um, they headlined the first ever live simulcast on June 25th, 1967. That's no big deal today, right? Because we do that all the time. Live worldwide simulcast. We've got satellites up in outer space. We can simulcast all sorts of things. It, was, it had never been done prior to June 25th, 1967. And they were the headliners. And they knew that on that date, 700 million people from around the world would tune in to the show Our World and see performers from 19 different countries performing. And what song did they sing? Anybody know what song they sang? All You Need Is Love. That was kind of a crazy thing because people had hoped they would play one of their most famous songs, but they decided to take a risk and write a brand new song because of the situation. Now, I want to ask you a, you a question for, for a second. Uh, and here's my question for you. If you had the opportunity to address the entire world, what would you say? What would you say? You had the opportunity to, you were going to be simulcast from around the world, let's say from your computer via the internet, and every person in the world was going to hear what you say. What would your message be? What would your message be? Well, their, their message was, was love. All you need is love. I think most of us as followers of Christ would, would agree that's important. It's important. But when John Lennon wrote that song, he never gave the answer. And what's interesting is that, I don't know if you know about this, but I mean, people have critiqued that song for the past 50 years. Artists, people have critiqued the song. What they've said is, you know, that, that is an incredibly simplistic song that tells you the value but never gives you the power, never tells you why. People have criticized a song as being very naive. It's easy, that's what John Lennon said. It's easy. Just do it. Just do it. Never providing the why or the, or the how. So let me take you further back in time. Let me take you back to the year 33 A.D., it's the night before Jesus is crucified, and Jesus, too, has a message for the entire world. He's not going to transmit it via satellite. He's going to transmit it via networks of human relationship. And Jesus' message can be summed up in one word, and that word is love. Here's what he says. 
a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now, I'll tell you why in a moment. That is such an astonishing statement. I'll tell you why in a moment. Now he, he fleshes it out. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus elevates love as our highest value. He doesn't make the statement, just, just say, y'all love everybody. It's easy. It's easy. Love is all you need. All you need is love. It's, it's easy to do that. Just, just do it. Doesn't, doesn't do that. What he does in that statement is he gives us the why, he gives us the how, and he tells us the result. So what I want to do is I want to I tell you the story behind this command. I'll boil it down to a single idea, and I'll give you some takeaways. To unveil the story, we have to ask, why does Jesus give this command at this particular point in his teaching? Well, for, the, for 12 chapters, John has been unfolding the life of Jesus, and it's been an amazing life. In chapter 1, he tells us where Jesus came from. Jesus came from God, and he is God. In chapters 2 through 4, John shows us that Jesus is an amazing miracle worker. He, he performs impossible healings. He heals people from a distance. He turns water into wine. He is an amazing healer. He opens blinds, blind eyes. Then things take a dark and ominous turn in the ministry of Jesus. Because from chapters 5 through 12, his ministry, his message is progressively opposed. It's opposed by the religious leaders. It's opposed by the common people. It's opposed by secular leaders, like we're talking Roman leaders. His ministry is progressively being opposed. And then something amazing takes place in chapter 12. And you could pass over it really quickly and, and not get it if you weren't reading closely. Because in chapter 12, what happens is the Greek peoples who are gathered in Jerusalem for some time with Jesus, they come to the disciples and they say, uh, we want to see Jesus. Can you bring us to Jesus? And immediately upon hearing that, Jesus realizes, okay, it's time for me to go to the cross. Remember, God so loved the world. And now in John 12, the world and the Greek-speaking people are coming to Jesus. And Jesus realizes, it's time for me to go to the cross. So from John 13 through 17, Jesus teaches his disciples about how to live and act while he's gone. That applies directly to us, doesn't it? Jesus is up in heaven. We're here. So John 13 through 17 is discipleship about how to act while Jesus is gone. And what's interesting is to compare this to the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Discipleship 101. Sermon on the Mount is basic steps in discipleship. John 13 through 17 is Discipleship 201. We get some advanced information about how to be followers of Jesus Christ. So I want you to imagine the scene. There's a large house in the center of Jerusalem. That house is probably owned by Mary, the mother of John Mark. On the top floor, there is a large upper room. Here's the upper room, the way it looks. That's the traditional upper room. We'll see that when we go to Israel uh, next March. That wasn't the real upper room. The real upper room is likely this one in a different spot 
in Jerusalem. Cindy and I sleuthed that one out and got to, got to see that one. That was, that was kind, of, kind of cool. So imagine they're in that upper room. There's a full moon. There's a bit of spring chill in the air. They sit down to eat supper, and there is tremendous tension among the 12 disciples. The tension is so thick, you can cut it with a knife. The reason for the tension is, first of all, the disciples are fighting like cats and dogs. They're at each other's throats. They're arguing and they're bickering like teenagers arguing about the TV remote. Luke twenty-two twenty-four 24 puts it this way. A dispute rose among them as to which of them would be regarded as the greatest. I'm better than you, Peter. No, you are not. I'm better than you. I'm going to have better more power in the kingdom. Are you kidding me? You're not going to have power in the kingdom. I'm going to have the power. In the... They're fighting back and forth over the most ridiculous sorts of things. Imagine how frustrating this was for Jesus. Imagine that you're an elderly parent. You're in the hospital, and you were dying of cancer, and you've got one day to live. And your four adult children are around your bed arguing over the inheritance. How'd that make you feel? Horrible. How's Jesus feeling about the disciples bickering back and forth? I mean, this had to have been frustrating. Uh, it was tense for another reason. Judas was about to betray Jesus. And what's interesting about this is that if you've ever been in a situation where one person is is like really, really grumpy and opposed to everything that's going on. You can tell. It's like there's an awkwardness. And there's an awkwardness because Judas is awkwardly silent. When he is communicating, he's awkwardly sarcastic. So there's tension in the room because Judas is about to betray Jesus. There's a spiritual tension as, as well because Luke 22, 3 says that Satan himself had entered Judas. Think about that for a second. You know, there are, there are ranks of angelic beings, both good angels and bad angels. And Satan himself wouldn't just inhabit anyone. He realizes this is such a strategic person, this Judas here, that he personally begins to work and so this the, seems like there is a spiritual darkness in the room. So Jesus is going to train the disciples, but he needs to get Judas out of that upper room. So he takes a piece of pita bread and he dips it into the stew, the cauldron of stew, and he hands it to Judas and he says, Judas, what you do, do quickly. Judas gets up and he leaves the upper room. And the very first thing Jesus teaches his disciples after Judas has left is this teaching about love. It's like, what do you teach somebody who needs to grow in Christ? Discipleship 201, what do you teach him first? What you teach him about is the centrality of love. So let's go back to verse 35. Remember, Judas is gone. It's like this, this blanket of peace has descended over the disciples in the upper room. Supper is done. Now they're talking about how to, how to act toward each other while he's gone. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another 
Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is an amazing verse because in this, these verses, Jesus gives us the why, he gives us the what, he gives us the how. So I want to I deconstruct this for a second. First, this is a new commandment. It's a new commandment. Uh, this means there must have been some other commandments. So what other commandments were there out there? How about the Ten Commandments? Like, how about the 613 other commandments that are present in the Old Testament law? There are other commandments out there, and those commandments did have to do with love. If you check out the book of Deuteronomy, you realize that the word, is, word love is used 28 times in the book of Deuteronomy. Love was all throughout the Old Testament, especially the first five books. So in what way is this a new commandment? It's new in the sense that there is new power associated with it. Jesus had just said, guys, this, this cup here is the new covenant in my blood. I'm giving you a new commandment. The new covenant had to do with power. The new commandment has to do with power. It's new, not in the sense that love is new. It's new in the sense that power is new. And we now have the power to carry out the commands of God. We can, we can love in his power. All right, quick takeaway. Husbands, what does, God, what does Paul command you to do in your marriages? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Well, you can do that in one of two ways. You can do that in the sense, and I'm going to try really hard to do this. I'm going to try really hard to make this happen. And you can get some positive, loving interactions from that. It's possible to do that. But when Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, he's asking us to do something different as husbands. What he's saying is, you need to love your wives with that spirit-empowered love with which Jesus loved the church. You remember, when Jesus loved the church, he is second member of the Trinity. He's always doing the things that the Father told him to do. So when he loved the church, he's loving the church in the power of Father and Spirit. That's what we're commanded as husbands to do as well, to love our wives in the supernatural power that God provides. That's the new commandment. The new commandment is not the newness of love. It's the newness of power. So when John Lennon sings, love, 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 love is all you need, just, it's easy. Just do it. You know, there's no power there. What Jesus does is he gives us the power to love in a refreshingly new and different way. Paul said the same thing in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says, the love of Christ constrains us. Well, that word constrain, picture a tube of toothpaste, and that the hand squeezes the toothpaste, and the toothpaste comes out of the tube. Okay, the love which comes from God squeezes us, and what comes out? Love. All right, so the new commandment has to do not with the newness of love, but the newness of power. Now, we're going to deconstruct this command a little bit more. And as we deconstruct it more, it's not just a command about love. It's a command about creating culture. And this is a really important thing for us to think about. 
he uses the term one another. That term is used 59 times in the New Testament. It implies that we encounter Christian community, one another. Like we're, we're several hundred people here, over 100 people here in, in this auditorium, and our command is that we would love each other, that our interactions with each other would be loving. This is a command to create culture. It's not just a command for me to love James, for me to love Jeremy. It's a command to create a culture where love begins to flourish in our midst. So you ask the question, what's culture? Culture is a way of life. Culture is a set of shared values. Culture is how we pass those values along. Culture is like an aroma. You know what it's like to go into a coffee shop and feel the aroma of coffee? You breathe it in, you go, oh man, do I need some caffeine this morning. It's a nice aroma. Aromas make you sense things even before you can articulate them. Love is designed to be a culture. There's, there's an aroma about love. You walk into a loving home, and there's a, an aroma about that. You can't put your finger on it. You can't necessarily describe it with words yet, but it's a culture. It's a culture. So that raises the question then, okay, if we're to make cultures of love, what, what is love? What is love? What is the kind of love Jesus is talking about here? Well, let me give you the simplest definition that I can give to you. Um, love means that I will the good of another. If I'm going to love somebody, I will the good of another, and then I act according to that decision. In other words, love is not infatuation. Love is not brotherly enjoyment of being with the guys in the golf course or being out hunting or fishing. Love is not infatuation or brotherly affection. Love is not joyful preferences. I say, I love blueberry pie. That is a joyful preference. It's not love. Biblical love is me willing the good of someone else and then proactively acting according to that good. So if I'm creating a culture of love, I'm creating an atmosphere where I'm willing the good of somebody else proactively, and then I'm, I'm acting to serve in such a way that that good is carried out. That's love. And what Jesus says is that I, I want you to create a culture of love around you. Let me tell you how I've, I've personalized this. In the last five years, I've put together a personal mission statement that reflects who I am as a pastor, who I am as a husband, a father, a grandfather. I'm doing a lot more mentoring and discipling now, so it reflects who I want to be as a, as a coach. And here's my personal statement. I won't put it up on the screens, but here's my statement. I seek to help others thrive. I equip them to understand who they are, like in Christ, and show them how to finish well in the next season of their life. Okay, I'm, in that statement, I am willing a lifestyle of love. Now, I'm an introvert, and, and yet I value being with people. So as I will love, there's times where I have to decide I'm going to be with people right now, even though I'm a little bit more comfortable being alone. 
So if you're going to build a culture of love around you, you have to will the good of those around you and then proactively move in that direction. Let's deconstruct this command a little bit further. The command comes with a tangible example. Just as I have loved you. How did Jesus love people? Well, you read the Gospels and you see this all over the place. Jesus heals the leper. What does he do? He doesn't go, oh, gross. Ugh. Okay, I'll heal you, but just get away from me. He goes up and he touches the leper. How did Jesus, um, when he encountered broken people, deal with the broken people? Did he say, okay, guys, um, here are gift certificates to the local McDonald's. Get out of here. Go get some food. He didn't do that. Um, he, he said, he felt compassion. He said, have the people come here and, and have them sit down. And then he, he feeds them. When Jesus sees, sees people mourning, he weeps. When Peter denies Jesus three times, he shows grace. The Gospels are packed with stories about Jesus' love. If, if you want to know how Jesus loved, read the Gospels with the love lens and just look at how he showed love to people in the Gospels. He gave us tangible examples. Love as I have loved you. And then we'll deconstruct it further. This is an expectant command. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. And what's interesting about this is that, is that the Gentiles had just come to try to get some time with Jesus what Jesus is, is envisioning here is that the Christian movement is going to grow and expand and get bigger around the world. He didn't say so that Middle Eastern people will know that you're my disciples or that American people will know that you're my disciples or that African people will... No, he's saying that all people will know you're my disciples. He's envisioning the Christian movement as growing and expanding and multiplying across the face of of the earth. So what he's saying is that love, the cultures of love that you, that you show, are going to sh cause the gospel to be catapulted around the world. So let's just kind of summarize this. Jesus' new commandment is a command that comes with power. It's a command to create culture. It's a command that comes with an example. And it's a command that comes with hope. Now we've got to raise a couple of objections to this. Objection number one is, wait a second, where did Jesus get his power to love? Where did he get his power? If he's commanding this love thing, like, what, give, what gives him the authority to command love? Well, notice what happens a little bit earlier in this passage. Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Just notice how many times the word glory is used. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. And glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so I say to you now, where I'm going, and he's going to a place of glory, you cannot come. Now, what we find out in this is that he's using a veiled reference to dying and, ri dying and rising. He says, basically, I'm going to glorify the Father by dying for the sins of mankind, the Father will glorify me in resurrection, and then I will glorify people by empowering them from heaven. That's, that's an ultra-simple gist of what he was saying. But we get a snapshot of the Trinity. 
And what we realize is that Jesus is eternally perfected in love because He is the second member of the Trinity. He is eternally perfected in love because He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the Trinity, you never hear competition about, about love or power resources, do you? The disciples compete over power. Never in the Trinity. You never hear the Father saying, hey guys, my universe, my idea, my rules, I do it all. You never see hear Son and Spirit going, okay, fine, micromanager. Never hear that happening. Or you never hear God, God the Holy Spirit saying, I'm the forgotten member of the Trinity. And nobody prays to me anymore. Nobody, nobody, everybody talks about Father and Son and no one talks about me. I quit. I'm out of here. You never hear Jesus saying, I am doing all the hard work around here and you guys are doing nothing except feeling spiritual and sitting around and planning stuff. I'm done. You never hear that. What you hear is Father glorifying Son, Son glorifying Father, Father glorifying Spirit, Spirit glorifying Christ. There is an eternally perfected love culture among the members of the Trinity. So what gives Jesus the, the power to say, guys, love as I have loved? He's getting, he's getting his power in his humanity from Father and Spirit, but he's eternally perfected in love. No other religion can say that. Not Islam, not Mormonism, not Hinduism, not Buddhism. No other religion says that the Savior is perfected in love. Here's, here's another objection. Uh, all right, got it, but maybe I can still do this on my own. And that's, that's the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter hears the stuff about love, and it goes in one ear and right out the other. The Apostle Peter is, you know, he's the quintessential doer. You know, just, just do it. Just get it done. Let's, let's make it happen. And he, he just doesn't even, the love stuff doesn't even register with him. So, so what he says, you know, after this love, this love command, doesn't even talk about the love command, is, is, is he says, um, where, are you, where, where are you going? Come on, where, where, where are you going? Why can't I follow you? Look, I'm, I'm ready to lay down my life for you. I'm not talking about the love. I'm talking about what he's, what he, what he's going to do. And Jesus says these hard words, Peter, will you, will you really lay down your life for me? Truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. Peter is trying to do in his own power what you really can't do in your own power or your own strength. So, that's... That's the story. What's the, what's the main idea? Jesus' vision is way larger than simply one person loving another person. Um, Jesus' vision is that the foundational step in our discipleship is to create cultures of love around you, to create them in the Spirit's power, and to create them in the expectation that God will change the world. Now, let's just look at that for a second. Um, if I am a follower of Jesus wanting to be a passionate, devoted disciple, what I need to do as I wake up in the morning is, is I need to think about 
who do I love today? Who, who do I will the good for today? Who do I will the good for and then act on that good today? Who do I do that with? Okay, then how, how am I going to do it? Because i got people in my sphere of influence maybe that I don't really relate all that well to. I'm going to need the Spirit's power. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to create the expectation. You know, by this will all people know you're my disciples if you have love. You know, I want to create in my heart the expectation that my love within my sphere of influence is going to change my corner of the world. And it may even change the world. It might even change the world. So, this is a really big, compelling vision. I think personally it's got to begin at home because that's where it's hardest. You know, marriage is, is, is an amazing institution, an amazing thing. Because when you get married, you are committing yourself to love your spouse unconditionally. Most vows have till death do us part, richer, poorer, in sickness and in health and so on. And you're so infatuated when you, yeah, 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 I'll do that, I'll do that, I promise you, I'll do that. And then the hard part of marriage comes because there's no relationship that is so close as husband and wife. And you see each other at your best, you see each other at your worst. And so this kind of thing begins at home. It begins with your marriage, it begins with your children. You know, you will the good of your kids with the anticipation that your culture of love will change their world. I really hesitated about whether I should say what I'm about to say next, but because um, but, but I, I don't consider myself a sterling example of this, but I'm, but I, I'm gonna say it. Uh, we were staying with our oldest daughter in February, um, and, uh, and one day she took me aside, and she said, Dad, I need to thank you for something. I know all these, all these friends who are in their, in their 30s, who struggle mightily over their view of God. And most of the time, it came through painful relationships with their fathers. And then she said this. She said, I, I realize I've never had that problem. I knew then, I know now, you love me unconditionally, and it's really easy for me to project unconditional love onto God the Father because of the way you love me. Well, I have to tell you, I received that with massive doses of humility. Because I can remember all the times I disciplined in anger. I said things I shouldn't have said. I didn't, didn't love Cindy well. I can, I can remember all the times I did not show unconditional love. Thankfully, she picked up enough to be able to project that on to the Father. But here's the thing. The thing, to the extent to which a culture of love was manifested there in that relationship between me and her, that culture of love now is shaping a culture of love in her family and in her church and in her community. That's why Jesus says, you know, you can change the world by doing this one person at a time. Now, this is where we went into a serious problem, though, because um, the church at large has often seriously, seriously failed at love with devastating effects 
on the Jesus movement around the world. If you ask people today why they don't go to church, what do, what do many people say? Man, I was just hurt so bad in a church. Or I saw the hypocrisy in a church. And I just don't want to go through that again. I can tell you many stories, but many years ago I met an atheist who was like a very, very strong atheist. And I remember getting to know her at a search ministries open forum. And um, she marshaled all the objections against Christianity, but there was an acidic tone to everything that she said. And I casually asked her about her parents, and it turns out her dad had been a pastor. And she used to love his little girl going to hear him preach, and she would sit in the front row and listen to her dad preach. She, he would open up the scriptures, and he would preach, and she was so proud of her dad. But there was a rift in the church, and the leaders of the church, instead of handling it in a mature way, handled it in the worst possible way by gossiping and saying bad things against, against him. And when they terminated his, his, his employment, there was, it was full of acrimony and hatred. And this little girl saw her father be broken by this. And they endured a year or two of poverty before the father went back to school and got an advanced degree and then himself became an atheist. Then she becomes an atheist and she said, I hate what those people did to my dad. I will never forgive what they did to a good man. Now, here's the tragic truth. The tragic truth is that this has happened way too often. Thousands of times in thousands of different churches, and it happens because people don't do what Jesus just commanded in this verse. And instead, they become petty, mean-spirited, and bickering. And it shouldn't be that way. The foundational command for disciples is the love command. We've got to create cultures of love around us. With that in mind, I want to look some, at some takeaways. And I'm going to start negative, okay? Um, because I, I want to talk about building cultures of love, but, but here's my first takeaway. Beware the trap of something that I would call Christian hatred. I could have said cultural hatred, I could have said American hatred, but there's a lot of hatred in our world these days. And here's the problem, our world is deeply polarized. And you have, you have conservative versus liberal, you have capitalism versus socialism, you have big city values versus country values, you've got traditionalism versus progressivism, abortion rights versus children's rights, coastal values versus Midwestern values, you get the picture. We are a deeply, deeply divided country. In our deeply divided country, what I see more and more is people expressing out and out hatred toward each other because they have become polarized in their view and they see people as adopting views that are damaging to culture. And what happens is we do two things at this point in America. We stop listening to each other. We stop spending time with each other. What emerges is hostility and hatred. And I've seen tragic hostility on social media between Christian number one and Christian number two as they're on Facebook or what other social media, and they're saying, well, if you believe that, you're just a jerk. You know, are you kidding me? How can you possibly say that? Well, you're an idiot. You know, and it gets worse and worse from there. 
And there is, there is a trend within our culture, even within the church culture, to express hatred toward people on social media or in conversations. And I, I just would urge you to confront yourself about that. Look, there's a time to earnestly contend for the truth. We're commanded to do that in Jude 1-3. But contending for the truth is not the same as being contentious with hatred toward people who disagree with you about what you believe. So I appeal to you, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. If you have edged into a form of Christian hatred, you've got to repent. I'm not asking you to change your political opinion. Embrace your opinion robustly and with gratitude. We live in a country where diversity of opinion is welcomed. We're great because we have a diversity of opinion. Embrace your political opinion, but don't express hatred toward people who disagree with your point of view. We have members of our family who are very different politically, and Cindy and I endeavor as best we can to create a culture of love that transcends political differences. Here's a second takeaway. Second takeaway is beware the trap of choosing action as a substitute for love. In John 13, 36, Jesus is choosing action as a substitute for love. Jesus' words about love go in one ear, go right out the other, and he says, just give me something to do, and don't make me love somebody else. Remember what love is, though. Love is willing the good of another and then acting on that decision. And you're doing that in the context of a culture. So you can do in the context of love, but it starts with love. And that's why we have this command of Jesus in Revelation 2. Je Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, I know your works. You toil. You're toil. You're patient endurance. You, can't in you can't, uh, cannot bear with those who are evil. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. You've not grown weary. These guys are human doings. They do, 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 do. Jesus said, but this I've got against you. You have abandoned your first love. And so the challenge for us is that we would not abandon our first love, that we would do, yes, but we would make love the priority. And so the final takeaway is this. Start creating a culture of love around you this week. What can you do to create a culture of love around you this week? I want to have a, uh, a time, of, time of silence, and uh, Chuck's going to come up to pray. And I just, I, let's turn the lights down low, and I just want you to ask yourself, who do I need to love this week? What culture of love do I need to create this week? How do I do that? And then I want you to ask God for the power to create that culture of love. We'll have a time of silence, and then Chuck will close us. As always, if you want uh, additional time for personal prayer or intercession for you or something on your heart, there will be members of the prayer team up front and around 
the uh, worship center to uh, pray with you. So let's let's pray, Father. Um, a message that uh, pierces my heart uh, in a way that um, makes me realize that I don't love the way you want me to love. Um, Father, I just thank you for the power that you give us to love. Father, I pray that you'd give us the motivation to create cult, a culture around us that allows us to, um, to love in the way you want us to love. Father, I pray that you'd help us expect a change in our world, be it our work or our home or our play. But, Father, also that it would have an impact worldwide as, as we move about and as your spirit moves. Father, I pray you'd give us the strength to see and the wisdom to see the areas where um, we do fail to listen and we fail to love. Father, help us to love first and then act and then see um, how we can do that on a daily, daily basis. Father, thanks for the grace and the mercy that you've shown us by allowing us to pray to you directly and that the Spirit would intervene for us. Father, we love you and we want to love others. In Christ, we want to love others. Amen. Hope you all have a great week.